0: Isaiah chapter 36, beginning in verse one, it says, now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, that Sennacherib or Sennacherib, depending on how you pronounce it, king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field or the place where they do laundry is the fuller's field. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. Then the Rabshakeh said to them. Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this in which you trust? I say you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. Now, in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed Egypt, on which if a man leans it will go into his hand and pierce it, so is Pharaoh, King of Egypt to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, who we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high place and whose whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall not worship before this altar? Now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you two thousand horses if you're able on your part to put riders on them. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Now, have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land. And destroy it. We're going to pause right there. This particular passage of Scripture, chapters 36 and 37, constitute the record of judgments that are about to come on Judah and Jerusalem for their persistent sin and their constant wickedness and their persistent rejection of the testimonies of God and the prophecies of God. Because Judah and Jerusalem have rebelled and rejected God over and over again, Isaiah warned the people. That there would be a judgment. That their enduring, willful, persistent rebellion would catch up with them one day. But something else was happening during Hezekiah's reign. This downhill slide, this disintegrating decline was beginning to be held in check. Something was happening in the midst of all of this rebellion and rejection. There was A glimmer of hope, a glimmer of righteousness, a glimmer of restoration was beginning to take place. And because it was beginning to take place, King Hezekiah, who might be considered the greatest king to rule in the southern kingdom of Judah, Even though he was great, his greatness was tempered with weakness and a few character flaws. In spite of the fact that he was raised in one of the most ungodly homes that you can imagine, in spite of the corruption and the wickedness that surrounded him, Hezekiah tried to turn the tide of wickedness and corruption. He tried to turn things around, and when he did turn things around, Judgment would be delayed for about 100 years. In this particular passage of scripture, we discover something. That the enemies of Judah and Israel are trying to take over Judah and Israel, and they begin to pick a fight, if you will. You have to understand something. Satan is a bully. And I think most of you know that. Satan is constantly trying to pick fights with you. He's constantly trying to provoke you, to stumble you, and to cause you to fall. I hate bullies. The one and only time that I ever got kicked out of school was because I got into a fight with a bully. This bully, there was this kid in my, in my junior high school class. His, his name was Bruce Minton. And Bruce was the son of a Mormon bishop. He was very slight. He was very frail. He was very weak. And he was constantly picked on. And this bully pushed him and pushed him and pushed him and pushed him and would tease him and push him and hit him and tease him and push him. And finally, I just couldn't take it anymore. And so it came time for gym and and wrestling. And I thought, I'm going to let this bully pick on somebody his own size. He was about six feet tall. It's the eighth grade, too, and the guy has like a full on mustache. But I'm thinking, I'm going to get this guy. And I we were wrestling and I took the part of my forearm and I hit him right on the back of the head. And I got him in a chicken wing and I turned him over and I dislocated his shoulder and then I pounded him. And the coach came in. We both got kicked out of school for fighting. And I lied. My mother said. You're such a good student and you make such good grades and you're an athlete and you're doing all this, you've never been in trouble before. What happened? I go. Mommy called you a dirty name. I lied. I lied and I justified my lie by thinking he's a bully and he deserves it. But the truth is that we're never called to stoop to Satan's tactics. Even a brief study of Satan in the Bible tells us that he's a liar in John chapter 8 verse 44 in Revelation chapter 12 verse 9. He's called the tempter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 5. He's the accuser of the brethren in Revelation chapter 12 verse 10. He's the enemy in Matthew 13:39. And you would think liar, tempter, accuser, enemy that most of us would get the message. He's not our friend. He shows up in your life and he pretends to be your friend and he pretends to like what you like and want what you want, but it's not true. He perverts the word of God. According to Genesis chapter three, verse one, he hinders the work of God's servants. According to first Thessalonians chapter two, verse 18, he blinds men to the truth. According to second Corinthians chapter four, verse four, he undermines the sanctity of the home. According to first Corinthians chapter seven, verse three, he's constantly prompting both saint and sinner to rebel, to disobey, to transgress God's holiness. And he's constantly inviting you to not trust God, to not obey God, to not serve God. Have you ever been in a circumstances where you have been tempted or you have been hurt or you have been involved in something that you knew that you had no business and you had an opportunity to stand tall for God, but you didn't? And you might think, I'm going to blame it on the devil, But we're constantly invited to trust the power of man or to trust the power of God, to trust the promise of God or to trust the lies of Satan. Who will deliver you from the threats and the sin and the temptation in your life? And see, part of what's happening here, God had promised deliverance to the people of Jerusalem and Judah. And this is the story of that deliverance in chapter 36 and chapter 37. It provides the story of the deliverance. And the ability to stand tall and the ability to resist and refuse temptation is the great practical lesson of this portion of this, of the scripture. So there's a shift that's taking place in the book of Isaiah. We might call this a, a turning point, a crossroads in the book of Isaiah. Remember what we've already learned, that the book of Isaiah is a book of poetry. It's a book of prose. It's a book of prophecy. But it's also a book of history. And so right now, what I want to do is point out to you what's going on in the historical context of the book in which we are reading. Chapters 36 and 37 finds the army of Assyria having taken over Samaria and destroyed the cities of the northern kingdom. A, an army of hundred and eighty plus thousand people have surrounded Jerusalem and they're ready to destroy it. This is the story of King Hezekiah. In chapters 38 and 39, we're going to see the story of Hezekiah, his illness, his fatal disease. Uh, As a matter of fact, after this particular um, section that we're going through, um, Hezekiah will contract a fatal disease and he will cry out to God for healing and for deliverance. And you might think, hey, if I got a fatal disease, I would cry out for healing and deliverance also. But this is one of those situations where God heals him and gives him 15 more years. And after his recovery, Hezekiah will experience a major failure. And that failure will include ambassadors from the east will come west to Judah and Jerusalem, seeking an alliance with Jerusalem. And Hezekiah will make a terrible, terrible mistake. He'll show the ambassadors of Babylon the treasures of Jerusalem. And when he foolishly shows the ambassador the national treasures, Isaiah predicts another future invasion, this time by Babylon. Hezekiah is like many of us. A committed believer. A person who truly loves the Lord and reads the Bible and wants to do what's right. Right. But sometimes we stumble. Sometimes we fall. And that's what happens to Hezekiah. His pride would contribute to the downfall of the nation that he loved so much. And it would change the destiny of the country forever. His foolishness will make judgment certain. So, in the next two chapters, you're going to see the Assyrian invasion of Judah by King Sennacherib. The envoy is sent a military commander whose job it is to get the children of Judah to give up even before the fight begins. Does that sound like somebody you know? Doesn't that sound like Satan? Satan's job is to get you to give up even before the fight begins so that when you're faced with trial and when you're faced with temptation, you hear a voice whispering, you're you're only human. Everybody does it. Nobody will see. Nobody will care. Why even go to church? Why even read your Bible? Why even make an attempt at holiness? Why even trust God? Your pain is too difficult. The, the The trials and the trauma of the problems that you face, you might as well give up and give in to Satan. besides, think of all the fun that you had as an unbeliever. And that's what he's trying to do to get you to give up even before the fight begins. And so it begins with the men from the king. Look what it says. Now it came to pass in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. The fortified cities are those cities that have a wall that surrounds them. Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh. Now the Rabshakeh isn't a proper name. The Rabshakeh is a title. In our culture and society, we have a government. We have a president in the president's cabinet. He has ambassadors to different countries. We also have the office of a person called the secretary of state. Our secretary of state right now is Condoleezza Rice. If there is a problem or a painful circumstance in the world, typically the president will send an envoy, the secretary of state. To talk about his position. That's what the Rabshakeh was. It was the title of a person who functioned as the ambassador or the envoy of the king who sent him. And it says, with a great army from Lachish to the north to King Hezekiah. So wicked King Sennacherib sends his envoy. And Rabshakeh's job is to get Hezekiah to surrender again before the fight begins. Here's his job to threaten, to ridicule, and to intimidate. And the king's men are named Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah. Now, the first invasion is described in Second Kings chapter 18. You might want to turn there because this gives us the historical narrative. In Second Kings chapter 18, verses 13 through 16, I'm going to... Begin reading at verse 13, where it says, and in the 14th year of, the, of King Hezekiah, Shenecherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish saying, I have done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And I've already told you that a talent is a measure of weight. And again, in this particular culture and society, this is before the invention of coins. There's no such thing as money at this point There's the concept of money. There's trade, there's animals, there's silver ingots and gold ingots and jewelry. But there's no such thing as money. A talent was a weight of silver or gold that represented the amount of money that a typical person would earn in a lifetime. And so. In Second Kings, it says, so Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid. These are the pillars that are out front of the temple and gave it to the king of Assyria. The king is coming. coming. And threatening and says, hey, guess what? I won't kill you and destroy you if you if you pay me a certain amount of money. Hezekiah caved in and paid tribute. Here's a question for you. Does the policy of appeasement work? No, because we know that Seneca will go. I know you paid me, but guess what? I'm going to come and I'm going to get more. Let me ask you another question. Has it been your experience that if you give the devil exactly what he wants, that he leaves you alone? The devil whispers in your ear, if you'll just do this. It's not like I'm asking you for everything. Just give in in this one particular area. It's no big deal. No one will ever see. No one will ever know. No one will ever care. Has it been your experience of that That he comes back and he says, and here's what he discovers, that if you're willing to compromise in this area, that you're willing to compromise in another area and another area and another area. Here's what we know. The devil always asks for more. At this particular moment in history, the power and the might of Assyria was overwhelming. Historical records indicate that Sennacherib captured 46 fortified cities. Unknown numbers of smaller towns and villages, he enslaved two hundred thousand people and through his siege, according to ancient records found outside of the Bible, he pushed forward into the province of Judah after having destroyed Samaria and surrounded, according to the ancient tablets, Jerusalem, the way that you would surround a bird in a cage. Sennacherib stayed behind in Lachish. He sends the envoy with this gigantic army to have a blockade around Jerusalem and to try to sue for surrender or to starve out the city. And when Hezekiah's sent men to hear the demands. He's in effect demanding to be treated with equal respect and dignity and authority. You see, the king of Assyria has been left behind. He sends the envoy. And so the king of 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 Jerusalem and Judah sends these three men out to teach or to, to speak or, or to talk. In other words, he wants to be treated with equal honor and equal dignity. It would be like this. Imagine, have you ever had a phone solicitor call you? Now, you have two kinds of phone solicitors, those who are real. There's a real person there. And then there is a recording. Have any of you ever gotten a phone solicitor that's a recording? Some of you have. Do you have a special recording that you put on for that recording? Hi, this is a recording answering your recording. Since you're not a real person, this is also not a real person responding. And since you're not a real person and I'm not a real person, then it won't hurt your feelings to say that I'm hanging up on you. And then you hang up. That's sort of what's happening here. The three men are coming out to hear the demands that are being made. And here's the message from the king of Assyria. In verse four, it says, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of... Of the Rabshekah, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. He's in effect saying, hey, look, you guys I hear are spiritual people and religious people. So I'm hoping because you are spiritual people and religious people that you will hear what I have to say. As a matter of fact, since you're the leaders of this pitiful little town, here's your job. It's to pray for the people who are left. And then in verse five, it says, so the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. And look what it says in verse six. And Isaiah said to them. Thus, you shall say to your master. Thus says the Lord. Now, here's here's the deal. The deal is, what does your God have to say? So they go to the man of God to hear the word of God. And Isaiah, the man of God, speaks the word of God to them and says, Thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. In a nutshell, he's basically saying, Rabshakeh, is going to trash talk. He's going to threaten you. He's going to intimidate you. He's going to try to humiliate you. Don't listen to him. And look what it says. Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. In other words, the fear, the threats... And the intimidation that is directed to Hezekiah, that's directed to the leadership of Jerusalem, that's directed to the people of Judah, God's taking it personally. This isn't threats, humiliation and intimidation simply towards you. It's towards me. But there's a principle there. When people persecute you. When people hate you. When people ridicule you, when people threaten you, when people intimidate you. Because you love the Lord and because you love the Lord Jesus Christ and because you want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. God says you're really threatening him. And we see that the perfect example in that in the New Testament, remember when Paul is persecuting the church and he makes his way to Damascus and a voice from heaven, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks to Paul and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I don't remember. I don't ever remember persecuting any invisible people with voices calling to me from heaven. Who are you? I'm Jesus. Whom you are persecuting. Isaiah reminds them of what the Lord wants. Don't be afraid of them. And in verse seven, it says, but if you say to me. We trust in the Lord, our God. Is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before his altar? Here's the response of the Rabshakeh. Here's Isaiah. We're not afraid of you. We're going to trust the Lord. God has promised to deliver us. Rabshakeh's response is, hey, wait a minute. You say that you trust the Lord, but your king Hezekiah has taken down the high places and broken down the altars. What Rabshakeh doesn't understand is that it is true that Hezekiah had torn down some of the high places, but these were altars to false gods. The Samaritans or this in the, in the Sumerians to the north had built a false temple and a false place of worship. It was a false form of Judaism. It's sort of like what would happen if, if the devil said to you, hey, I thought you were a Christian. Well, then what are you doing making fun of your Mormon brothers? Your Jehovah Witness friends? What are you doing making fun of your Christian science friends? And you remind the devil that Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and Christian scientists aren't Christians. By exposing them for what they are, false forms of Christianity. Is God offended when you oppose false forms of Christianity? The answer is no. Here, the ambassador or the envoy of Assyria has sown several seeds of doubt. He basically is going to suggest that Hezekiah's military strength is non-existent. Look in verse four. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. What confidence is this in which you trust? I say you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. Now, in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? In other words, here's the idea. My army is bigger than your army. Our resources are much greater than your resources. So he's basically saying the words of Hezekiah are empty and the army is weak. He's mocking Hezekiah's dependence on Egypt, that in a war, Egypt would splinter like a toothpick or a reed that and cause the defeat of any ally who's stupid enough to lean on them for help, according to verse 6. Rabshakeh continues to mock and belittle Hezekiah's limited trust of the Lord and dependence on the Lord. He accuses Hezekiah of insulting his own God. What kind of a Christian are you? Don't you realize that all of the pain and all of the problems and all the circumstances that you're facing right now is because you've rebelled and disobeyed your own God? Has Satan ever whispered in your ear, God's mad at you? You're crying out to God, trusting God. Here you are crying out to... To God and trusting God. But where where were you this morning for your devotions? Where were you when you weren't reading your Bible? Where were you? I mean, how come you keep skipping church? How come you don't tithe? How come you don't give? How come you're so selfish and, and preoccupied with yourself? And you're here sometimes and then you're not here sometimes. God's mad at you. And you think. Maybe God is mad at me. Now all of this is happening because i've I've failed to be obedient to God, but again he 's whispering in their ear, trying to undermine them, trying to undermine their confidence and their faith, pointing out that to hezekiah that that he's displeased the Lord but But God wasn't displeased with with Hezekiah tearing down the high places and the altars of worship against the false gods. And in verse eight, it says, now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you two thousand horses if you're able on your part to put riders on them. Here's the idea. The idea is, oh, you have an army. Here's what I'm willing to do. I'm willing to sell you two thousand horses if you can find 2,000 men who will get on top of that horse and ride against us. This would be very much like in our own country. Imagine um, in a modern war, a general says to the enemy, hey, look, I'll sell you 2,000 guns. I'll Imagine we go to Iraq and we say to the Iraqi government, or to Iran for that matter. And we say, hey, we'll give you 2,000 tanks. If you can find people to drive those tanks against us. That's a pretty huge threat, isn't it? In other words, the whole idea that you have an army, really, we don't believe you. And then in verse nine, how then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Assyria has an army well in excess of one hundred thousand people. How? How can you defeat this army and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? The Lord told them not to make a wicked alliance with Egypt. And they did it anyway. So here is Rabshakeh, the envoy of the king of Assyria, laughing, saying, you trusted in these things. Ha ha, ha. Isn't that again just like the devil? You trusted your bank account, you trusted your job, you trusted your health, you trusted your circumstances, you put your trust in anything and everything other than God, ha, 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 it let you down. And then it says. The messenger of the king of Assyria basically reminds the children of Judah. They can't trust Egypt because the king of Egypt is unreliable. They can't depend on God because Hezekiah has insulted his own God. And in verse 10, have I now come up without the Lord against the land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. This is Rabshakeh's way of saying, how do you know that your own God didn't send me here to destroy you? As a judgment for your own sinfulness and your own wickedness. You can basically rest assured that everyone listening to that, their hearts sunk. Because was it true Did Isaiah say there's judgment coming unless you obey God? You see, it's one thing. To have the judgment of God come upon you, but it's another thing for the devil To say to you, and that God has sent me as his emissary and envoy to judge you. But you know what? It's not true. That's the bottom line. It is not true. God did not send them. God was going to use them. So that they will cry out to him and repent of their circumstances. Then Eliakim, Shevna, Joah said to the Rabshakeh, "Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand and do not and do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall in the northern part of Samaria, going all the way up to what's now modern Lebanon and Syria. The ancient kingdom of Assyria spoke the language known as." Aramaic. There seems to be a couple of reasons why they want them to speak in Aramaic. Aramaic is the language of culture and trade and diplomacy and commercial transactions and governmental interactions. So the Judean people standing on the wall in Jerusalem, they can hear every word being spoken in the conversation. And by overhearing the threats of the Assyrian envoys in their own language, the people Their their hearts are filled with fear. They're gripped with fear. Now, again, if we were to put it in a modern way of thinking, imagine somebody comes to your house and they threaten you. Now imagine that they threaten you in front of your children. Is there a difference? You know, it's one thing to threaten me. But it's another thing to threaten me in front of my children. Because if you threaten me in front of my children and you create within my children fear and worry and concern, then I'm going to have to deal with this at a whole nother different level. As John Corson says, eavesdropping on the wall usually ends up in a fall. But the Rabshakeh says in verse 12, has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall? You will eat and drink their own waste with you. Hopefully this doesn't need a lot of explanation. Basically, what Rabshakeh is saying, you're the bad leaders. I'm going to continue to speak in the Hebrew language because I want them to hear every word, because unless you give in to the fear and the threat and the intimidation, the truth is we are going to hurt you and you will eat and drink your own waste. In other words, instead of having decent things to eat, you're going to have nothing to eat. You're going to have worse than nothing to eat. The envoy reminds the men of the king if the leaders don't surrender, it's not going to go well for the people, the people who are going to suffer most. And again, that's exactly what Satan does. Unless you give in to Satan's demands. What about your children? Uh, unless you compromise, unless you give in, unless you do what Satan wants, where were you? Where, where will your children live? What will your children eat? Um, what will they do? And, and you can imagine every single mother's heart's is gripped with fear and circumstance. I've got to compromise and I've got to make concessions because my children's lives are at stake. Just like Satan. If you don't surrender, your family will suffer. And then in verse 13, then the rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and said, hear the great words of the great king, the king of Assyria. He knows the power of fear and he knows the power of propaganda. Satan understands the power of destroying people's confidence in the Lord and a big mouth sometimes indicates a very bad heart. And that's what Satan does. He shouts. On the radio. And on television. And in the world. He uses a great big mouth. It comes over the loudspeakers. Christian, you're a fool. Christian, you're an idiot. Christian, you're completely outside the mainstream. You funky fundamentalist Christians. What in the world are you thinking? Believing that the Bible is true. Believing that Jesus is the Lord. Believing that you could experience grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus and Jesus Christ. Why are you putting yourself through this? Why aren't you satisfying your every demands? You know, here you are clinging to this this ancient superstition. This myth that there's a real God and that Jesus loves you and that the Bible is true. Who do you think you're kidding? Because after all. ABC, CBS, NBC, and CNN says that you're all a bunch of kooks. Everybody in the world knows that you're completely deluded. The envoy is suggesting that the people revolt against Hezekiah and give in. In verse 14, thus says the king. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Don't you understand there's a gigantic army? It has you completely surrounded. Unless you surrender, you will die. Hezekiah, he's a good guy. He's a great leader, but he's not going to be able to deliver you. Your pastor, hey, God bless him. Sure, he comes, he teaches, he opens the Bible. But what good is your pastor going to do when the mortgage is due? What good is your pastor going to do when when the pain and the problems and the circumstances and the overwhelming temptation is is going to take place? Hey, your pastor can't save you. Hey, Calvary Chapel can't save you. Hey, Christianity isn't going to save you. How are you going to really deal with the very real problems that you're facing? In verse 15, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, Oh, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. He's mocking him, saying, yes, if you say trust the Lord, guess what? Even God has given up on you. Does it shock you or surprise you that Satan would say such a thing? Did you hear the voice whisper in your ear, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you always, even into the end of the earth. I love you and I will be with you. The Bible says if I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Though wickedness and evil surround me. The Lord is my shield. He's an ever-present help in time of need. And God wants you to stand tall in the midst of trial and adversity. But Satan is trying to shake you to the core. So he says, revolt against Hezekiah. If the leaders won't give in, if the leaders won't surrender, then revolt, Revolt. remove the leaders. If Geno won't help, if Calvary Chapel won't help, if Christianity won't help, then leave. They won't help. Just give up, give up on God, give up on Christianity, give up on Christ. And he challenges them to surrender. Make a treaty. Your leaders can't deliver you. They can't help you. Look at verse 16. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present and come out to me. And every one of you will eat from his own vine and every one from his own fig tree and every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern. Here's the promise of Satan. It's hard knowing and loving and serving God. But if you give in to the demands of Satan, guess what? You'll get a great job. You'll make lots of money. It doesn't really matter if you have to lie, cheat, and steal and compromise. Because just think about how great you'll have it. You'll get to eat real food. And in verse 17, until I... Come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Here's the promise. Just give up now. I won't kill you people. I'm just simply going to relocate you. The temple and Jerusalem and Judah and the land that I've given you. He says, God, I'm going to take it away from you and put you somewhere else. I'm going to take you to a place where you won't have a place of worship and the inheritance of a promise that was given to you by God. And that's the invitation that Satan extends. Abandon the Bible. Abandon Jesus. In effect, the envoy is saying, Think about it. Life will be better under the new regime. The people will have plenty to eat instead of eating your own feces and drinking your own urine. Oh, did I say feces and urine? But that's what it says in the Bible. So after questioning Hezekiah's military strength his alliance with Egypt his dependence on the lord the assyrian envoy demanded their surrender this is a pretty skilled negotiator isn't it the commander gave four reasons why hezekiah should give up give up because you don't have an army give up because you're outmanned and outgunned he laughs and suggests like i said Um, You don't have an army. You don't have horses to ride them. Hezekiah should surrender because his greatest warriors can't defeat the, the, the weakest person in the Assyrian army. He should surrender because he can't trust Egypt. He should surrender because he can't even trust the Lord himself, because even the Lord is against Judah. Even God has abandoned the children of Judah and Jerusalem. Give up. But even a true statement can be considered a lie. if The point of the statement is to build a case in order to deceive. Satan does exactly that. He'll tell you a lie. He'll tell you a lie in order to get you to stumble. do you remember what Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1? Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said... You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Remember how it began? Don't trust God. Doubt God's word. Doubt God's goodness. God isn't really all that hot. His word isn't really true. Look at verse 18. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Once again, the envoy is basically saying, choose life over death. It's better to live the life of a coward than to be a dead hero. And then he closes his appeal with a deadly threat. No nation has ever been delivered from Assyria. They came from the north. All of Samaria collapsed and folded. Every town was swallowed. Every hamlet burned. Every fortified city destroyed. Just like Satan, huh? Has anything changed in thousands of years? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? In verse 19, he's talking about the foreign gods of the ancient peoples that lived in the northern part of the kingdom. Where are the gods of Sephar Vaim? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Here is the idea. Hey, I thought you Jews, there's this northern kingdom. Hey, they're religious like you. God didn't didn't spare them. Verse 21, who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Well, what should have been their answer? Well, you know, there was this time back when we were slaves in Egypt and Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army was the mightiest army of all. And they had Moses and all the children of Israel cornered at the Red Sea. And remember, Moses stood up. He held up the stick. The waters parted. We went through the waters and and the armies of Pharaoh came in and then they closed the waters. Get the DVD. You can check it out at the library. Did the children of Israel have a history of God keeping his promises? Yeah. Hasn't God kept his promises to you? When he said he showed up, didn't he show up? When he said he'd forgive you, didn't he forgive you? When he said he would love you, didn't he love you? So how did they respond to the threats? Look at verse 21. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But they held their peace and answered him not a word. for the king's commandment was do not answer him. Hezekiah had told the envoys he's going to frighten you. He's going to threaten you. He's going to intimidate you. But no matter what he says, don't answer. You know what? I think that the same is true in the New Testament. Do you remember what it says in Jude chapter one, verse nine? Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said the Lord rebuke you. Remember, the dialogue of Satan is the dialogue of doubt, of accusation, of unbelief. We walk with God. We talk with God. Our conversation is with the Lord. My advice to you when Satan comes knocking at the door: don't carry on a lengthy conversation, don't enter into dialogue with the devil. When you hear Satan come knocking at the door, I know what you do. Nobody's home! Nobody's here! Sort of like Halloween, you know, when you turn off all the lights and you pretend like nobody's there so you're hoping none of the trick or treaters will show up. Here's what he's basically saying When the devil comes knocking at the door, send Jesus to answer the door. Hey, Lord, could you get that? Look at verse 22. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, not Soni, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. They brought the news to Hezekiah. They tore their garments. The tearing of the garments is a sign of trauma. Of grief. Of distress. In the next chapter, the king is going to inform Isaiah of the terrible danger and pleads with Isaiah to pray for the people and to ask God for help. To pray for God's deliverance. I'm just going to give you a sneak peek before we go on for next week. And so it was when Hezekiah heard it that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth. And look what happened. He went into the house of the Lord. In the midst of trial and pain and overwhelming threat. Here's what's going to happen. Give you a sneak preview. He's going to pray and ask for God's help. He's going to pray for God's deliverance. Isaiah is going to tell the king that Sennacherib is going to experience a humiliating defeat and face death himself. And next week, we're going to see round two in the battle between Sennacherib and Hezekiah. Basically, the king of Assyria will threaten to destroy the Judean king. Hezekiah's cry is going to be heard all the way up to heaven. Satan threatens find your special place open up your Bible turn to the promises of God cry out to God remember that he's going to keep his promise towards you but we'll learn more about that next week won't we Heavenly Father, Lord, the New Testament says that we're aware of our enemy and we're aware of his tactics. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He speaks with a big mouth. Tries to fill us with fear and threats and intimidation. But Lord, I pray that we wouldn't listen. Lord, I pray that you would be our help, our ever-present help in time of need. Heavenly Father, for that person who's experiencing that overwhelming sense, I'm surrounded. And the voices are calling out to me, threatening to overwhelm me and destroy me. Heavenly Father, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would remind them of the promise of Jesus. Jesus. I'll be with you always even to the end of the earth. I will be with you and I will be in you. I'll live inside of you. That no matter how dark, no matter how painful, no matter how fearful, I will give you exactly what you need. I'll be your ever-present help in time of need. I will be your provision. I will be your light in a dark place be your forgiveness and I'll be your hope and I'll be your future. Heavenly Father, I pray that each person here would be able to stand tall in the time of adversity and to cry out to you and then to trust your promise for deliverance. Lord, you told us to pray and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the wicked one. Lord, you said that we could submit ourselves to you. And that Satan would flee. And so collectively, Lord, we pray that we would do exactly that. In humility, we would submit ourselves to you. And that you would be our Savior. Our Deliverer. In Jesus' name can okay.